Welcome to Between the Lines. I'm your host, Lou Palumbo. No secret, no shortage of issues that are quite contentious today and rather divisional in their very being. We seem to lack the ability to compromise, have civil and decent discussions, and ultimately focus on uh, the future of our children and, and how we're going to proceed by providing them a world that makes some sense. I'm hoping that we can employ logic and reason and truth, common sense and decency. We are full of animus, full of division, full of the wrong rhetoric, full of less than constructive criticism. We don't necessarily have to agree on every topic that we speak to, but we still have to have respect for one another. And unfortunately, that's left the conversation. I see I have some callers lined up. I have my producers in my ear, Ryan and Lloyd. I hear Ryan may even ask me a question today, but let's first go to our callers. This is Rob. Rob, Lou Palumbo. Yes, hi. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, absolutely. Thank you very much for having me this morning. Yeah, where are you right now? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Interesting, because I see you have a 310 area code, which is indigenous to Southern California and specifically the Los Angeles area. So I won't delve into how you got that number. Obviously, you spent some time out there, Rob. But Uh, um, Yeah. True. Born and raised in Pittsburgh, moved to SoCal after college, ended up moving back. Interesting. I've been to Pittsburgh working. Really nice city. I was there in um, winter of 1979. Nice people. A lot of potholes. Got to be honest with you. Um, They're still there. Yeah, I'm sure they are. You, you, you've actually had us beat New York with potholes somehow. I don't know how you did it, but you did. But it was actually an incredibly great visit. I visited the University of Pittsburgh took a swim in the pool, and I had a really nice experience up there. So, And I also have a very nice. good friend of mine who happens to be in the security business with me as well, who was a high-ranking law enforcement official from Pittsburgh PD, but uh, a great city, great state, also Pennsylvania. What were you doing in uh, L.A., may I inquire? I was hired out of, uh, after college, Westinghouse, which is based in Pittsburgh, hired me uh, and moved me to Southern California. I was in, uh, in sales for them. And um, I had a couple different jobs in sales, and then I, uh, I transitioned into taking uh, flying lessons at the Santa Monica Airport, um, and um, where I got all my uh, air um, aviation ratings and certificates, and ended up um, I'm an airline pilot today. Oh, so, great. that's uh, great! Yeah, kind of, kind of. Uh, I did a few things out there. I was in sales. I bartended uh, for a little bit of time and uh, did and worked in uh, at the Santa Monica Airport while I did all my training and got all my hours. And uh, uh, and then anyway, and, and coming back visiting family here in Pittsburgh, I ended up meeting the lady who is now my wife. We did the long distance dating thing for a little bit, and uh, I ended up moving back. And the company I work for bases me right here in Pittsburgh, so it all worked out nicely. Yeah, that's great. I have quite an interesting relationship with California and L.A. in particular, uh, starting in 1971 and finally moving there in 1989 for business purposes. Uh, Lived in Malibu, lived in Ventura County, which is beautiful, Manhattan Beach. I know the place quite well. I know the whole state, actually. But uh, I gather you have a question today. Let's move on to that rather than small talk the whole afternoon. Well, no, it's the small talk is going to lead into the large talk because, uh, I mean, you lived in Manhattan Beach. I lived in Hermosa Beach. I know it well. I, yeah. um, originally, uh, when, when I was moved out there, I, I lived in, they moved me to Riverside. And then, uh, you know, a couple twists and turns, and I ended up living in Hermosa Beach for the better part of uh, almost 20 years. Um, but the question I have for you today is pretty topical for Los Angeles. Uh, lately in the news... Um, the, uh, something I've read about in a couple different forums is the homeless problem that is, uh, well, it's not just specific to Los Angeles or Southern California. It's all over. I see, uh, homeless people in, um, in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, where I am now in the city of Pittsburgh, in my travels, I, I, I see people, um, but lately the Venice beach boardwalk has made the news about a tent city that has, uh, has grown significantly there in Venice, mostly because of, well, because of COVID it has grown, but the problem itself has, has grown. And, uh, whether it's Venice beach or I have a friend that's in downtown LA, um, tent city and, and the homeless population is a is a huge problem there's over a half million people in this uh, country that are without a home and um right now in venice beach 
Um, there are residents who are afraid to go outside. There are um, uh, business owners who are afraid that their businesses are going to be threatened. There's increasing crime amongst the homeless with one another and to those that uh, are just residents of Venice. And uh, I saw a video where people are sitting outside in Venice Beach enjoying their day uh, at a bar or a restaurant right there on the boardwalk or on the Strand. And uh, there's Tent City, not, you know, 15, 20 feet away. So my question is, you know, what can we do? Um, you know, these are these are human beings. We can't just sweep them away and pretend like they don't exist. Um, but something needs to be done to help these people, whether it's find a place for them or get them back on their feet somehow. Um, that's my question today. What do you think? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is um, separate the two I would say demographics that are living homeless today, some are the mentally ill, which is an sure. interesting question and a very heavy lift for the government. We dismantled the mental health system in this country after an expose that was conducted by Geraldo Rivera way back when, focusing on a facility in New, uh, Staten Island called Willowbrook, uh, the lack of proper treatment, to put it to you politely. You know, we're having a hard time treating our veterans appropriately. You can imagine how they treat the mentally ill. In New York, for example, that translated to disbanding, um, uh, let me think of these two other facilities, there's Willowbrook and then um, Creedmoor and Pilgrim State. And basically we have a lot of people that are homeless on the street. Now I'm gonna talk to this topic and you're gonna find this rather interesting. Having been in law enforcement, law enforcement agents run up against the homeless we don't necessarily take them into custody, per se, in a conventional sense. We do it in a manner of welfare. And we contact mm -hmm. the families and try to reintroduce them to one another. And the family's response is that we can't take them. Sometimes there are other children in the, uh, in the house, and they'll explain to us they pose a threat to themselves and to these children. And hence, they're on the street. So that's one of the demographics that we have um, living in our streets today, and a very large number of them. California's got a captive audience, and so does New York, interestingly enough. We have other individuals that are homeless today. Some just have checked out. You'd be shocked to see the number of veterans that are living in the street homeless. We have just failed to properly um, formulate a policy, a program that's going to reinstitute their participation in the culture. The one thing I will tell you is that continuing to pander to them, and I'm re specifically referring to now those that are not mentally ill and, and give them uh, entitlement programs and feed them at the beaches. You know, there's an interesting dynamic that lends itself to Southern California in particular. It's easy to live there on the beach. You have a place to recreate the ocean. They have showers. You can sleep literally in the sand. And as you can see today, they've become rather lax in addressing um, pitching tents. Now, you know, people have to understand something. Tent cities are not new to this particular time in life. We had them uh, back during uh, the Depression, so this is nothing foreign to us. Back then it was driven sheerly because of poverty. A lot of the people that we have living homeless are just disenfranchised, not just from their families, but from society as a whole. Yep. So I would say to you, and this sounds slightly harsh, but we have to try to separate out those who are mentally ill and try to build some types of facilities or, or environments that they can, I would say, exist in in a rather civilized manner, which is the real problem. And then as far as the others, stop creating programs for them and feeding them as they have done in Santa Monica, for example, since I first set foot in L.A., um, as a resident in 1989, I mean, they're just making it too easy. You have to motivate people. You don't motivate them by pandering to them. They've got to get back in this game. You know, there's also another dynamic that's attached to people that are homeless, and, and in particular, it deals with our veterans. Some of these young men and women that come back from overseas after fighting, they're mentally and emotionally cooked. We have a more general term called PTSD. I don't even think PTSD really puts this thing in perspective as to how damaged they are as human beings as a result of these negative and harsh experiences that they go through. 
we have to t- you have to break this down one at a time and go after each one of these problems in a singular fashion. Unfortunately, we're not doing any of the above. The reason this exists in a, in a wonderful state like California, by the way, is because the political environment allows it to exist. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, I'll just make reference to the city of New York. Prior to the swearing-in of, of this current mayor, de Blasio, we weren't having a homeless problem to the magnitude we have now. If you encourage it, it will come. You know, the reality of the situation is you cannot create environments for people to come and just exist, support them without being productive. And that's really what we have going on. And the bigger question here is all of these programs that we're supporting people with are being paid for by taxpayers. This is going to tie into the next comment I make as to why people are fleeing California in record numbers. You can't make a million dollars and spend two. You know, the interesting dynamic about California is it has so many revenue generators your head would spin. Starting with agriculture, half your food, your produce, and your vegetables consumed in this country come out of California, not to mention their export. They have the Mm -hmm. entertainment industry. They have tourism. They have Silicon Valley. They've got the wine country. They've got aerospace. They've got it. They've got it. They've got it. You can't make $2 million and spend three. You can't make three and spend four. It's just simple math. So the political mindset has to change. And, And this really has a direct correlation to the Democratic Party, and this is without being without being critical of them, I I believe in taking care of people. What I'm struggling with is the manner in which we're doing it, and how it's handicapping them. We're not helping them by just giving things to them. We have to help them reinvent themselves. Now that lends itself to another discussion about providing counseling for people. A lot of people have just checked out in this society. I I witnessed it on many many levels. Nothing as severe as what we're experiencing today with the homeless and the mentally ill. So what I'm going to say to you in finality and answering this question for you, the government has to adjust its policies on how they manage the homeless. If you're going to help them, help them. You are not helping them by pandering to them and providing for them subsistence and programs where they can just exist and breathe air every day without being productive not just for the outside world that they live in, but for themselves. So um, I'm just curious what, you, what, you, what you're thinking uh, about um, my response and your experience, uh, how you see, if you see any correlation and does it make sense? Well, I, um, what you're saying about pandering or, or um, uh, giving, giving in to them or making it easy um, is 100% correct. I was up in Portland, Oregon, maybe a decade ago, visiting a, a friend this is when I lived in, in L.A., and I went up there to visit a friend, and I made a note about uh, to him about the, the homeless population, and he said, oh, it is so easy to be homeless here. You can practically get 20 meals a week, and, um, you know, that's great, and, and personally, if I, if I was homeless, I, uh, I think I would probably be in Southern California or on the West Coast. I certainly wouldn't be in the Rust Belt. Um, where it, you know, dips really cold in the wintertime. But um, there, there has to be more than just uh, giving them a place to sleep at night and warm meals at, or, and hot meals. Obviously, you, we need to feed them. We need to make sure that they're not out uh, at night uh, exposed. But there needs to be a plan in place to get them back into society. And like you said, um, some people have just fallen on hard times. Um, you know, there are stories out there where people have just lost their job and the, the, the you know, they, they got divorced or whatever. One thing leads to another. Next thing you know, they don't have anything. And there's obviously a problem with mental health and those that have been, uh, in the service and suffering from PTSD. I mean, we just have to do better on, on, on all fronts. We have yeah, to do better let, for our let, veterans, no, and we have to do... Rob, the thing, the thing you have to do also here is be fair, especially today. You know, you've got to look at the size of the country. You have to look at the population in the state of California. That's a difficult place, a place to manage. You know, I want to touch on something that you also brought up that's rather interesting that we experienced not only in Southern California, but up in Seattle when they, crea- Seattle, when they created this autonomous zone. Yep. Um, you know, they, the government has a responsibility to taxpayers, property owners, business owners, to allow them to make gainful employment and not have their investments go down the toilet, to put it to you uh, bluntly. 
you know, there is just systemic failure in that state. And I don't really want to be overly harsh with Gavin Newsom, the governor, because I think it's an incredibly difficult job. I think they just have to change the political mindset in that state. I won't, I don't want to speak to it, um, too thoroughly as far as my opinions as to where it went wrong and when it went wrong. But I'm just going to tell you, the mindset has to change and they have to look at the big picture. You know, going up to Seattle for a second, when the mayor of the city referred to this as the summer of love, which is a term that came about through my generation, by the way, a few decades ago. I'm wondering. I'm familiar with it. Yeah, Inception. Absolutely. Well, Um, I'm just curious. They said it about Seattle last summer. I'm curious how the business owners and, and, and the residents with children and homeowners, you know, likened that statement. You know, basically they disrupted their neighborhoods. They put their children at risk. They put their families at risk. They put their businesses at risk. And we just can't seem to understand how to manage situations. You know, there's two words that have left this conversation today. And I want to say it's, it's what's driving the destruction of every major city in this country. It's boundaries and consequences. There are no boundaries, and subsequently, there are no consequences. If you look at a state, for example, like New York, where they just passed bail reform, it is now a revolving door for people to engage in criminal activity and go out and participate in it in a redundant manner. It's confounding what we're doing. And by the way, they're doing the exact same thing in Los Angeles and parts of California. For whatever reason, the district attorneys lack the compulsion to prosecute people, number one. So they just release them and we go back out and we have the same problem. So it's a very big problem. I think um, we're not going to, we're not going to answer this question in totality today, Rob, to be very honest with you. Again, I always like to say this at the beginning of a conversation, but I want to encourage you to call back in. I'm going to give this some more thought. I'd like you to give it more thought and then please feel free to give us a call at another time. Well, we're going to take a break. Real, I'm sorry, Rob. Oh, I was just going to say absolutely. I mean, you've, you've touched on some some great points here. And, uh, you know, the, the situation in Seattle is very similar to the situation in Venice Beach. Uh, how long will the residents put up with this when Venice Beach depends on uh, tourism to come in and, and see the iconic uh, beach and all of all of its um, uh, characters? Well, it, ha- it has it history was- to it. And I just want to remind you of yeah. something. You know, they filmed Pumping Iron there with Governor Schwarzenegger. You know, it has right. a, a unique flavor to it, to be very candid with you. It's always been a little funky. You know, it's got that thing going on about it. It's like, kind of like Berkeley up in Northern California. It's got its own air about it. But that's not what we're speaking about today. We're talking about the de- decay and decline, and that's something completely different. None of that funkiness or weightlifting on the beach or just that free living there ever really impacted um, business owners or property owners. What we're talking about today is is destroying a community, and that's why it has to be addressed. And again, I'm not sitting on the West Coast, but I don't know if there's any conversation going on about addressing this issue. Look, I, I want to continue this conversation with you. I've got to take a quick break, break and then get to our next call. Rob, thank you so much for calling in, and don't be shy. Call back, please. Lou, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me this morning. My pleasure. Thank you for calling. Take care. I'm going to take a break and thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Welcome back, and I think we're going to go to our next caller this morning. Well, uh, hello, Lou. Hi, how are you? Who am I speaking with? This is Thomas Stephen Reap the uh, Fourth from Virginia Beach, Virginia. Interesting, interesting. How are things at Virginia Beach these days? Um, it's a little hectic right now. How so? Uh, it's just pretty phenomenal what's going on with this whole gas line. Yeah, it's interesting, huh? Yes, um, sir. It is. Very interesting conversations taking place in this country. Uh, regarding how we are protecting essential services that uh, support our infrastructure here. Um, I, I'm sure you have a question that you want to get to on this topic, I have a feeling, Thomas. You got a question related to this? Yes, sir, I do. I mean, Virginia Beach is in the state of an emergency right now because of the lack of gas. I mean, people are hoarding all kinds of gas in large containers and just filling up as many cars as they can. The price, they're, they're price gouging. All the gas stations are definitely like increasing everything it's can. I just want to know when might this go back to normal? Well, if you um, rely on what's being reported in the news, they're saying by the end of the week, this is going to um, kind of level off. And then probably by next week, the supply will be flowing again. You know, unfortunately, 
um, we have a tendency to knee-jerk in this culture. An incident takes place and we go right to a position of extremism. We start to hoard and we panic is the word. You know, what's absent today in the conversation is a voice from the government that keeps everyone kind of calm. That has to come locally and also from the President of the United States. I've not heard too much um, coming from the President regarding this issue. You know, there are some other discussions, um, Thomas, regarding what's going on right now with this colonial pipeline. And interestingly enough, yesterday I had a kind of conversation with the gentleman who are helping collaborate with uh, developing this project that you're participating in right now. And one of the things I, uh, I brought up was the fact that this is a privately owned company and the onus is on them to make sure that they have the technology in place that would protect them from some type of hacking or cyber issue. And um, so people understand I'm not totally illiterate in this area. I have colleagues of mine that I work with one of them who worked for CIA and happened to have specialized in cyber. So there yes, are sir. firewalls that can be implemented that would prevent this. What we're learning now is that apparently they had in place um, a, a device or mechanism provided by Microsoft that would we would say, conservatively speaking, was outdated. And hence, we had the cyber in- incident. You know, one of the things this invites is oversight by the government. What's so interesting is that we don't want the government in our business. If you don't want the government in your business, do what you're supposed to do responsibly. If you want to know what lends itself to an incident like this, every time a corporation looks at security, whether it's personnel, technology, anything related to security, it's not on the top of their list because we don't generate revenue. That's a big, big part of this problem. You're 100% correct. Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, and, 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 and subsequently... Uh, the United States has evolved into what we would refer to as a reactive culture, not proactive. So I would think that Colonial Pipeline, living in sync with the times, would have implemented some type of technology to prevent an incident like this. Now, there's another discussion to take place with this also, and I'm not here to beat up the intelligence community, but unfortunately, the role of the intelligence community, I would say, has expanded, to put it conservatively. They have to look over the rest of this country, like with an umbrella, and make sure they're not attacking our oil reserves. They're not attacking attacking our power grids, our water supplies. And they are doing that, by the way. So it would appear that this wasn't being done by the government because if it was, they would have been able to head this off. And it certainly wasn't being done by Colonial. So the ramifications of that is more instability in America. You know, we're going from one set of circumstances like the pandemic to another one now with the oil. You know, they've got to give the public a break at some point in time. And people that are empowered to do things that are correct learn to do them. I think there's going to be a lot of hearings and discussions about how this happened, how to prevent it in the future, because this isn't the only pipeline that feeds fuel to our states across the country. And now the government should should put in a practice of going to each of these entities and saying, by the way, what mechanisms do you have in place to prevent what just happened with Colonial? So, yep. so out of everything bad, Thomas, something good will come of this. The unfortunate part is that this came again at the expense of the psyche of the American public, creates a lot of instability. It makes us question our institutions. It's a lot of, a lot of things that shouldn't happen. But ultimately, the onus fell on Colonial, and the government has to step up at this point and realize that if they're not going to do it, we're going to do it. Maybe what you do is charge them for the services of the intelligence community. I'm sure there's a way to go about this, but we have to start to motivate uh, a lot of these various institutions that are key to the, to the health of this country on many levels to put in the technology that will, um, how would you say, prevent incidents like this again. So. Yes, sir. So, Lou, what I'm saying is a lot of it has to do with the people itself. We're causing this mayhem. Here in our local area, um, if somebody were to be a little bit more civil and controlled about it, and everybody, like I said, are just rushing and rushing and rushing to get there, I mean, we're our own default. And then if we can't control this, or like you said, the gas stations or the pipeline people that are running that can't control that, and you have to specifically rely on the government, I mean, we're just sitting here. It's almost like a socialism. You have to sit there and say, hey, we can't do this without you. You have to have the government run this because we can't do it ourselves. 
I don't think that you necessarily have to have the government run it, Thomas, but there has to be oversight. I think that's really where my comments have gone with this. The government has to now step up as a result of this incident and start to contact various um, entities that supply us water, power, fuel, any number of commodities, for example, and make sure that, that they have the proper technology in place to protect their grids, to put it to you politely. So, you know, uh, again, this is an unfortunate set of circumstances. You know, the public suffers the fallout from it. And, um, you know, we're also having issues today with truckers. You know, we need more truckers today. We need more pipelines. The country's growing. I go and say this every time I speak. The country went from 200 million people in 1970 to about 335 million today. You have to continue to support that. So um, it's a very good question. It's a very hot topic in the news today. There's going to be more discussion about this. But, you know, the interesting part about this is that this was avoidable. I don't know who they have in their employ at Colonial that is of security background, like most of these corporations have corporate security heads. I work with quite a number of them. They're highly competent individuals from the FBI and the Secret Service and uh, had prominent careers in local law enforcement. I'm curious to know if they have anybody in their employ of this nature and whether or not they follow their recommendations. You know, to be candid with you, an assessment may have been conducted regarding this deficiency in their security, and they just ignore it because they don't want to allocate money towards something that doesn't generate revenue. I said that to you earlier in the conversation. That yes, is, sir. unfortunately, the truth behind this problem. You know, these companies have to understand what their exposures are. Everybody's out here quick to make money which is very reluctant, reluctant to spend it. So, But that was a great question. And um, any follow-up, anything else you want to say, Thomas, in re- relationship to this conversation today? Of course. Um, like I said, I, I think that we can all do our part to try to make this go a little bit easier for everybody. I think that in the individuals would take a little bit more time and be respectable to other individuals that might need this. And, you know, running down to the gas station and filling up as much as you can, calling shortage for other people is not going to be beneficiary for anybody. Well, you know, if I may just comment to that very quickly, we're watching people roll up to gas stations with open tubs that they're filling with gasoline, which is illegal, by the way. You have to have a specific container to put gasoline in other than the gas tank in yeah, your we car people fill gas and trash bags down here I'm- well you know well so here's here's my question where are the owners of the management of the gas station saying you can come in and say take 15 gallons of gas and supervising this it isn't that difficult therefore you have shorter lines because you have less consumption and the bottom line is this a voice has to exist to keep keep the the public calm and explain to them we're going to get through this we'll be fine you know we don't hear any of this here all we do is you're 100 we run with a topic and people just panic because they have no direction we need guidance that's why you elect people we need guidance from the media also the media has to be part of the solution not part of the problem so you know long story short this thing is a learning experience once again and you know, we went through a, sh- uh, a gasoline shortage, an alleged one back in the 70s, odd and even license plate numbers, you know, lines that went for hours and hours. And the bottom line is this, you know, if you're not an essential worker, for example, like law enforcement, nursing, fire department, sanitation, you know, uh, doctors, you know, p- people of this uh, background, we, we should limit the amount that you consume. In other words, as a rule, and especially since they tagged onto this thing a window of time of about a week you allow people to come in and get 10, 15, 20 gallons of gasoline maximum and get them on their way. Not that they camp out and they're filling every container, including plastic containers and, and plastic garbage bags with fuel because we're panicked. Like it's, we're never going to get fuel back again. That's not what's happening. It's a, an interesting discussion, another critique of the culture. I don't want to say it indicts us again, but it does in a little bit of a sense, you know, and we need to start to now address uh, the possibility and the potential of incidents like this going on every day. Look, uh, people don't know this also. There are thousands of cyber attempts on this country every single day. You know, our guys are at the point, our intelligence community, they're overworked and underpaid, to put it to you politely. It's a rough one, but this is the nature of the thing. The other thing that's coming out about this, and I don't mean to continue on with this topic, is we're finding out that this group came out of Russia. And interestingly enough, the comments that are being made is, this would have never happened in Russia without the knowledge and consent of the government. You know, we have onward um, activity 
attempting to hurt our country. And this is something America needs to understand as we're pulling ourselves apart at the seams over the other social issues and things. An interesting conversation, an interesting America we've involved into today. So I, I thank you for calling. I encourage you to call back again. And we're going to have to take a quick break and thank our sponsors. And then I think we're going to go to some emails. Thank you so much. Okay, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Um, before we go on to our emails, I do want to have a brief discussion with you about something that's come to the forefront recently, and that has to do with NBC's uh, sudden policy of abandoning airing of the Golden Globes in 2022. Um, some people may be aware of it. Some people may not be. Uh, but I ran a security for the Golden Globes for 14 years, and... Um, I am very familiar with the Hollywood Foreign Press. I, one of the gentlemen involved with the Hollywood Foreign Press, Lorenzo Soria, who recently passed away, uh, was the president a number of years. And we became actually very good friends because we managed to collaborate in this area of problem solving, which is absent today overall in the country. But I, I find it interesting that NBC has decided to impose their will as to how... Um, uh, the Hollywood Foreign Press should develop its membership. And I'm wondering if what they're attempting to do is to um, imply that there isn't diversity. Because I will tell you firsthand, that is the furthest thing from the truth. Now, before I continue on, I do want to say this. Of the 87 members, almost all of whom I've met in 14 years, there are no black members in the Hollywood Foreign Press. I don't know if that's because no one has ever applied or if they did apply, they didn't meet the standard. I mean, there could be any number of denominators. But the notion that this was is being driven in some type of prejudicial manner is a tough one for me to accept, and I'll tell you why. Lorenzo Soria, interestingly enough, uh, family from Italy, apparently after World War II, they went to, uh, to South America where he, born and raised, was Jewish. Aida was from the Middle East. Moonwaz from India. Jorge Camaro was from uh, of, of Latin uh, Latino derivation, I believe, from South America. A lot of people from all over Europe and other parts of the world. I don't know of a more diverse group of background than the Hollywood Foreign Press. That's the first comment I want to make. Now, obviously, if there are qualified individuals, regardless of your race, your color, your creed, you should be included in this equation. So I don't know really what's really going on here with NBC all of a sudden. And I'm not looking to take NBC on, ladies and gentlemen. That's not the purpose of this. But I find it interesting that they have decided to harm the Hollywood foreign press because, in their opinion, they failed to comply with a mandate that they see fit. I, I'm a little, little confused here. The first question I have for NBC is you obviously have a contract with the Hollywood foreign press. And in, included in that contract, is there a mandate that you must have X amount of people from every ethnic group, religious denomination, or place on the planet? And if it isn't, you just breached your contract. Your responsibility is to air the show. If you want to enter into conversations with them regarding their representation, that's one, that's one discussion. But when you start to harm them and uh, impede their ability to make uh, revenue, which is basically what they're doing. I know what these shows make. I've been made privy to it. Very close friend of mine, Ron Weed, um, we had discussions. I know Barry Edelman's been the executive producer, exceptional man, brilliant guy. Um, I know the monies that are floating around here. It's lots of money. And they're now damaging the HFPA. And I'm wondering if the HFPA is posturing to sue them. Because I don't know what right NBC has that they would impose what they think their standard of representation should be. How do they know the HFPA haven't gone out and solicited people that were black, for example? I don't, I don't know where this is so coming from. Um, I do know that the ratings tanked last year. Maybe they're looking to get out from under this. I'm not 100% sure in regard. That's just simply speculation and food for thought. But I'm a, a little perplexed as to what the angle is here. And I doubt very seriously, as I mentioned before, that they had all of these terms and conditions as to who had to be a member of the HFPA in order for NBC to air this show. I think there's something else driving it. That's just my opinion. And this, again, a say in finality, 
there is so much diversity in the Hollywood foreign press your head would spin. And I gotten to know many of them for almost a decade, a decade and a half. And they don't always get along because cultural differences and philosophical differences. Um, everybody has their own take on how you want to present your side of the story, so to speak. But um, I think this thing's thing, this needs to play out a little further for me. And I need to understand what NBC's uh, mission statement is ultimately here. Is it to damage the HFPA? You have, a, you have an axe to grind with them because they're going to damage them. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And now the legal question is, do they have an entitlement to do what they just did? So I say stand by, um, and we're going to see how this thing all works out. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go to an email right now. We're going to have Julie from New York has a very interesting question. Julie from New York asks, crime is up everywhere in our major cities from this time last year, from New York to Chicago to Austin, Los Angeles. But are those numbers skewed since they were all under quarantine last year, so no one was really leaving their homes? Well, you know, independent of the fact that there were clearly less people, for example, in the city of New York, the statistics regarding criminal activity are compiled by the city of New York and more specifically the police department in the city of New York. And I will give you a statistic right now that will alarm you. Shootings are up in New York City over 86% over the, uh, this time last year. There is nothing in the best interest of the city of New York to come out with a statistic that high when they're trying to induce tourism to come back into the United uh, excuse me, back into New York. Okay, there's nothing in their best interest to put out a statistic that is so high when they're trying to, I would say, uh, reinduce people to come back to the city of New York for the purpose of tourism. There's no motivation in misrepresentation of any of these crime statistics anywhere in the country, primarily because they're so derogatory. Here's something else I want to mention to you. There is a political entity common to each of these um, major cities that are having skyrocketing crime. I'm not going to speak to who it is. I like people to figure this out for themselves. And I would think if anyone was going to underplay the stats, and in fact, Mayor de Blasio in New York City is trying to tell everyone as he gives his press conferences how safe the city is. I don't know what planet he's living on, but he's obviously not living on the planet that involves New York City. Crime across the board is skyrocketing. I'll tell you something interesting. It'll probably amuse you. One of the crimes in New York City, for example, that's going through the roof is shoplifting. Homeless and mentally ill are walking into supermarkets, restaurants, pharmacies, little eateries, every type of establishment where you can consume a product, picking up what they want and walking out, and no one's doing anything. First problem is there aren't any police around. The day of proactive policing is gone. Whether people like to accept that as the truth or not is up to you, but that's the truth. The last three times I was in the borough of Manhattan, I didn't see a police car. I guess these kids finally got the memo. You're looking to take their pensions and potentially separate them from their families by incarcerating them. You think the police are going to be there for you? One problem. Second problem, even after they depart with commodities, for example, say from Dwayne Reed, the, the managers of these facilities and owners of these establishments don't want to prosecute. So this is an interesting dilemma that we're facing, and it's a crime stat. The robberies, street robberies have gone up dramatically. Literally every day in the city of New York in the subway system, there is an assault or some type of egregious incident, whether it's a slashing, pushing people onto subway tracks, pushing people into moving trains, any number of crimes. So I don't want anyone to come away with the notion that any of these numbers in our major cities are being fabricated or being overstated above all things, because that just simply isn't the truth. Um, Julie has posed a good question as to whether or not there's legitimacy attached to the statistics that are being, you know, put forth. But the reality of it is they're compiled by the city of New York and nothing's being fudged here. Believe me when I tell you. There's another um, expression or concept that's that floats around in law enforcement. It's called reclassification of crimes. That lends itself to this notion that doesn't again apply here. That's, for example, if someone commits a serious assault, they plea it down to where you are guilty of an harassment. An assault can be a felony. It's defined as substantial pain or protracted disfigurement. Harassment could be something like me, you know, yelling in your face or slapping you in the face, which is an assault. Again, you need substantial pain, protracted disfigurement. 
We are reclassifying crimes potentially, and I'm not saying this is happening, but this all lends itself to this question. Someone breaks into your home, do you charge them with burglary or do you charge them with criminal trespass? Criminal trespass can be a misdemeanor. Burglary in a residence is an A felony. So there's a big discussion perhaps about, you know, the classification of crimes, what, what cities are doing, or the statistics that are being put forth as to the extent of the criminal activity. But I want to reassure everyone, these are not fabricated numbers. This is real. If you question it, come into the city of New York. You'll see for yourself what's going on in our streets. It's irreprehensible. And by the way, it's happening in Austin, happening in Los Angeles. Nothing to say about San Francisco. News puts it News puts it out there for you almost on a daily basis. Portland, Seattle, and turmoil. Do I need to bring up Chicago? Weekend before last, 38 shootings. Oh, that's right. That was the same week New York City had 46 shootings. Does anyone think those statistics are being fudged or misrepresent anything other than the truth? So the question was interesting, to put it to you politely, and um, I hope that answered sufficiently for Julie. And Julia, I want to encourage you to contact us again, especially if you have a follow-up to this uh, to this email that you sent in. I do appreciate it, and it it brought up brought to light a very interesting topic about the condition of these cities and the legitimacy behind the statistics that represent the crime in these cities. Thank you so much for that, Julie. Okay, we're going to go to one of our producers who's promising to make a phone call right now. As as I mentioned, I believe one of our producers is about to call in. There it is. Lloyd Molander, I presume. That's correct, sir. Good show today. Hey, there's no secret we do our show in uh, Florida, and you do some work in New York, Florida, and all over the U.S. Can you tell me in your uh, short stint uh, in Florida, what is the difference in in, uh, leisure and business and leadership and all those things about Florida that you notice different? from uh, New York and some of the other major cities comes down to leadership. So tell me, you know, from what you've seen, how is the business environment? How is the leisure environment? Those things. Interesting to know. Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of a synopsis and the differences in being, for example, in Florida and New York. and, And there's one major, major word that resonates. It's this word called civility. That word has left the conversation up in New York. There's just a complete lack of civility. Um, What's interesting about the South, and I will speak to it because my mom was a Southerner from Arkansas, blonde hair, blue-eyed, Scotch-Irish, and Cherokee Indian. Don't go by looking at me, folks. Um, A lot of common sense, a lot of decency. Um, They're not caught up with politics, rhetoric, political correctness. They're not worried about what people think. They go right to the root of the problem. They employ common sense, logic, and reason, and they problem-solve. And if you look at the prosperity in this state, it speaks for itself. This state has an incredible governor. If you look at the difference in the financial footprint in the state of New York and the state of Florida, it's startling. Do some research, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not going to spoon feed you. Um, I would tell you the leadership in this state, this young man, DeSantis, is exceptional. Ironically, he's from the Ponte Vedra, Jacksonville area, went to school in Yale, at Yale, he's a very, very smart young man, had military service. You know, he just has a very simple, commonsensical approach to problem solving, which is absent today because we're worried about politics, as I mentioned earlier, and, you know, who's going to like you and who's not going to like you. And I can tell you, they don't care down here. They're going to do what they believe is right. And I would say, based on my experiences here, they're doing a lot of things right. I go back to just the ease and living. The people here, it's just alarming as to how nice they are. They can't do enough for you. I'm not going to say New Yorkers aren't like that because I'm a New Yorker and that's my mindset. But overall, we live in a pressure cooker up there and it, it just it diminishes the quality of your life. It harms your frame of reference, the context in which you live. We're just on top of each other in every way. You know, I tell people um, when, when people come outside New York – and they come into the city, for example, there's a word applied. It's called volume. Interesting word, volume of noise, people, buildings, traffic, and it just goes on and on. And after a while, it just overwhelms your senses. And that translates ultimately to your civility. And people change over time being in New York. It's the saturation of just a lot. You know, you're just saturated. There is no question that you learn a lot growing up in New York. You know, everything that I've become, everything I know about life, my ability to travel, 
garner information and just learn is the fallout or byproduct of there. It's cost me my civility. It's partially why I'm down in Florida, to be very candid with you. I have four small children. New York is not the place to be any longer. In you addition, think New York will ever come back? Um, I, I remorsefully say not to what it once was, and that's for a number of reasons. One of them has to do with the pandemic and the change of lifestyle or mentality of the worker. Uh, CBS put out a statistic where they polled working force, and they said 60% said they wanted to continue to work remotely. What that would translate to to the economy of New York would be devastating. If 50% of the people that normally travel in and out of New York every day stop doing that, think of how that would translate to pharmacies, restaurants, the movies, the theater district, and it goes on and on. It would resonate through transportation everywhere, and that's the path we're on. I don't know what the inducement would be for anyone, especially today, wanting to travel as much as two and a half and three hours each direction into Manhattan to be subjected to what's going on there with the crime. City's been mismanaged. There's no nice way to say it. For whatever reason, uh, the mayor's been given a pass. I don't get that. I don't know why the governor has not insinuated himself into this local issue in New York City, but he's chosen not to. But I doubt the city will ever be what it's going to be again because there is no political will to support the police and to allow them to do what they need to do. And be, by the way, there's no, there's no motivation on, uh, on the part of the police to go out and get involved any longer because every time they do, the next step might translate to them losing their jobs or going, you know, going to jail. And there's, no one smart's going to do that, folks. But, um, you know, differences between Florida, for example, and Florida isn't the only state. There's a lot of nice states down here. I've been in Savannah, Georgia. It's a wonderful, wonderful city. I had a home for a short uh, span of time in Charleston, South Carolina, another wonderful city. Someplace that was very close to my heart for a very long time was California. I tell people in all candor, if it hadn't been mismanaged starting in the mid-90s, to where it is today, I'd be living out there. It's an incredible state. There is no state in the union like the state of California, especially when you start wandering around it and you start to see everything there is there to offer, and it has a lot to offer. You know, New York is New York. The city of New York, the borough of Manhattan, is an anomaly. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Please don't mistake the rest of the city of New York as the other four boroughs. They're not quite the same as Manhattan. What people will find that's interesting in New York, which lends itself to my comments... There's, an, there's a county in, uh, contiguous to New York City, just east, called Nassau County. It has about a million and a half people. To put this in perspective, that's the same number of people in the city of Philadelphia. That's almost twice the number of people in the city of San Francisco. Almost three times the number of people in the city of Boston. That's referred to as a suburb, or as they jokingly now refer to it as the sixth borough. Suffolk County uh, has more people. Suffolk County has a larger footprint, to be very candid, so we can accommodate more people, but I would say its population right now is pushing about 2 million. If anyone's listening to these numbers in the New York metropolitan area, we probably have close to 12 million people. That has a direct impact or influence on how you evolve as a human being. You know, the, 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 um, the manner in which we live in New York is rather tense. You know, we're always on the go. We're pushing and pushing. You look at Florida, People keep this a little easy. They keep things in context. There's a lot more civility here. California was like that as well. California is a different discussion. But, um, I, you know, I, I have to say this, and I'm not saying this because I'm here, but Florida is the place to be. And in reference to people coming from up north, I'll tell you something interesting. I have conversations with people from uh, Florida and the southern United States, and they're worried about people coming down from New York with their attitudes you need to lighten up a little, folks. And their politics, and I laugh with them. I go, if you think you're worried, not as worried as I am because I'm running from it. So I would ask everyone, if you're coming down from up north, leave your politics, leave your attitude, come down here and relax. These are lovely people down here in a beautiful state that has an immense amount to offer. This is another state. There's so much here to explore. It's scary. I mean, and I haven't really had the opportunity to do so, and I intend on taking my children on this journey. I didn't get to take them on my journey to California. Um, but um, as far as states go, 
better managed state, not even a horse race. Go do a little investigation here. You'll, you'll be startled as to how, how well run this state is. And the mentality down here is exactly what the net rest of the country needs to follow suit with. Common sense, logic, reason, problem solving, solving. get away from your political agendas and, and all that collateral noise that does nothing but distract us and, and prevent us from growing. So I hope that answered your question today, Mr. Molander. Yeah, it absolutely did. And hopefully we get a check from the Chamber of Commerce for that uh, good uh, plug on Florida there. To further my discussion about Florida, I do want to tell everyone the food here is exceptional. Um, I've had the good fortune of plugging into some restaurants in a community called Ponte Vedra, which is near St. Augustine and in St. John's County. The food is exceptional. But I'm begging for someone to come in with Italian food. That's all I'm asking, folks. I'm having a difficult time, uh, and I've been spoiled in New York with Italian food. But the food here is exceptional. The waste staff is exceptional. Um, and by the way, if you do need a great real estate broker, Jeannie Leapley, Coldwell Banker. Girl is one hardworking character. She put up with me for two years before we finally were able to get down here. And uh, she persevered through me. So, um, But it's a, a, an incredible experience down here. And uh, as I said, you know, I, the other thing you have to see here, which would blow you away, the beach clubs are just magnificent. And um, it has a lot to offer. You know, I've, I've worked in Florida quite a bit also. I worked recently in Miami with um, someone from the entertainment industry. And um, it, Miami's another great city, great people. An interesting thing is um, the, the the diversity in, in Miami is quite, quite telling. But I've been, been all over the state also. I've been to Sarasota, which is Absolutely gorgeous. Uh, Longbow Key, uh, Siesta Key. I mean, they're just, you know, Orlando, uh, spent time there, can get hot and humid. You know, had to work in Disney World there, which was interesting. Great staff over in Disney World. You know what I think it is? The people here are just different. They, they just come down and I think they're just relaxed here. And, and they have an easier way of life, something we don't have in a lot of the major cities. So I did want to finish up by saying, mentioning the fact that if you want to eat, food here is very, very good in Florida. But I'm dying to find an Italian restaurant. I'm almost going to kidnap somebody from New York and bring them down. No disrespect intended. As always, we appreciate you calling us or emailing us. Please go to our website at betweenthelines.tv, and there you can leave your messages. And you can also find information uh, regarding things that I care about and I want to want you to see. Our producers amply titled that section, Lose News. Today, we've had some very interesting topics. There seems to be some every week, and uh, hopefully next week there'll be more interesting things to speak about, and we'll be on that path of problem-solving and trying to bring some resolution to issues that kind of haunt us. Thank you for joining us today, and I look forward to hearing from you next week. I'm Lou Palumbo, and this has been Between the Lines. Yeah.